Good morning. Uh, welcome those in the auditorium. Welcome those who are watching online. Just kind of a couple of quick family items. Uh, one, we've been announcing Reengage. Reengage is our ministry to help marriages, uh, both to help men- marriages thrive or in some places uh, marriages to heal up. And so we're having a like all campus party tonight at six o'clock. If you're interested in being part of that, we've have I think a couple of groups that have already formed, three or four. So if you want to be part of that, come check it out tonight. You'll find out tonight whether it's something that you want to follow through with, but it would be worth your time to check it out. If you don't know if you have the right time, if you can meet at the right time, whatever, come check it out. Maybe there's somebody in the same situation you're in. That's the night. Uh, listen, the other thing is I have an announcement that we had a shipment come in late that um, I can't tell you about, um, but maybe next Sunday would be a good Sunday to be here because um, like something's going to be given away like next Sunday to everybody. And so maybe, maybe uh, you should come back um, and that would be awesome. Um, so next Sunday we'll do that. And that'll be, that'll be an awesome thing. We'll get to kind of tell the world what we're doing together as a church. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your, for your beautiful way that you care for us uh, day after day, week after week. And Lord, uh, some Sundays we come in a moment like this and it sort of reminds us that God's been good to me this week. God's been present. God provided strength. God provided comfort. And so, Lord, whatever we need in the next few moments, would you provide that as well, whether we're in the auditorium, whether we're watching online. Lord, we just, we want to hear from you. And so, minister to your people, I pray. Just minister to your people. And uh, anyone listening to the sound of my voice, when you hear a message, um, try to hear it with open hands. And just in your own soul, if you can imagine that, Open hands, Lord, whatever words you have for me today, that's what we want, because we want to be more like you. And we'll give you great praise for that in your name, Lord. Amen. So if you're tuning in for the first time, maybe you've been traveling, uh, I understand all that kind of stuff. We launched uh, Project 20 last week, and Project 20 is basically this. The vision we have for a church is we want to see 20 Christ-centered communities planted in the next 10 years. And so we're changing everything. We're evaluating everything. We're looking into everything. Um, I'm actually leaving in a couple of weeks on a retreat with some key people in our church that we're going to begin a strategy for how this thing all plays out. This is the vision that we, we believe God is calling us to. And there's a, there's a real clear reasoning that I'm sort of embarrassed. I, I have to tell you that you would think, Tom, didn't you know that before? Um, but maybe I did. Maybe I just ignored it. Uh, but the reasoning behind this uh, 20 Christ-centered communities in the next 10 years is this. The right and privilege to plant fresh works of Christ-centered community belongs to nobody else but us. This is our responsibility and our privilege. We get to do that as a church. There's no one else kind of wired up to do this. It's only the church. It's, it's us that, that we get to do this. And so the way I said it last week is the bride of Christ produces the bride of Christ. And nobody else is interested in producing the bride of Christ. And so our, our thought is, you know, in 10 years or 20 years or 15 years, who's going to be planting fresh works? Who's going to be planting fresh churches? And, and so that's, that's on us. And man, the response this past week has been amazing. Um, I shared with you last Sunday about the facility we've been allowed to use in Spartanburg and then a $100,000 gift on top of that to improve that facility. Right now we're recruiting a church planter to go into the Spartanburg community and plant a church there. Um, this week we've received several significant financial gifts of people that said, hey, this sounds like something that would be worth an extra gift. Um, we received an email from a friend of ours that watches uh, in Colorado Springs, and she asked for an alive community to go there. So Lisa and I are moving um, as well. 
as well as half the staff. And if you all want to go, you know, we'll get a bigger U-Haul and we'll just all kind of head out there together. That'd be awesome. Um, several folks have even come, I was surprised by this, and mentioned a desire to be involved in church planting. And that's exciting. Um, several have come forward with other resources, land, experience, abilities. And, and people are starting to pray about how they can be part of Project 20. And, that, and that's pretty exciting. <clears throat> so here's a, here's a question. When we talk about multiplying at this level, when we, when we have the audacity to say, what would it look like to plant, you know, 10 Christ-centered communities or 20 Christ-centered communities in the next 10 years, what are we replicating? What are we trying to do? Because not everything we have now should be, should be repeated. So what are we replicating? Well, Alive has a very clear vision statement, and our vision statement has been the same since we started 17 years ago, and we want to reach spiritually hungry people and introduce them to a personal relationship with Jesus and an active role in healthy Christian community. Uh, you may have seen me draw it more than you've seen me say it, and so this is kind of what it is on the napkin version. We want to reach spiritually hungry people. People find a personal relationship with Jesus. What's that mean? Well, it means you can call on Jesus whenever you want to. You don't need me for that. You don't, you know, you can do it when you're driving in your car and you're just alone and you want to talk to God about something going on in your life and you, you have that kind of relationship with him. And then healthy Christian community means you prioritize finding Christian brothers and sisters who will walk with you in this life. And and so we've been using that for years, and we started to mine down a bit more about what this process looks like. So how do I know if I'm actually involved in the spiritual transformation process? And we've, we've kind of summarized it in three real simple phrases. The first one is this, it's to meet God. That's the first thing. So are, are you in the spiritual transformation process? Well, can you find a point in time in your life when you met God, when you said, I want you to be my savior? That's your personal relationship with Jesus, where Bible calls this part salvation, you know, where you give your heart to Jesus, you ask him to forgive you for your sin, to be saved from those sins. And that crisis experience in, in a person's life, that's what we mean by meeting God. Then there's a second stage where we learn to grow in faith, and that's part of spiritual formation. We learn different things about spiritual maturity, or then we learn different things about what it means to be a believer in a personal, personal way. And I would say the Bible word for this one is, is sanctification. Sometimes there's some freedom issues here, whether it's some addiction that needs to be broken, or some recovery that needs to happen, or, or whatever, marriage that needs to be repaired. All that's part of this growing in faith moment. And and, and it means to be set apart. This, this is where we learn to live life as God intended, is the word I would use, as, as God intended. And, and so th that's the second stage. And here's the third one, and that's to make a difference. Make a difference. So if you're engaged in the spiritual formation process, you should be able to identify really where you are right now. And my concern is, as a church, we've spent a lot of time doing this, and we've sort of been piling people up right here. And maybe it's time we understand that this is just as much part of spiritual transformation where we make, make a difference. As God changes us, you cannot help but desire to, to see that change in the family that you're a part of and the relationships you're a part of or the community you're a part of. You want to see that spiritual change take place in them as well. And God has given each and every one of us spiritual gifts it's according to scripture. It didn't, wasn't just like one person in the community got spiritual gifts. You got them. You, you got spiritual gifts. And, and God gave those gifts for you, to you for one reason, 
to make a difference. That's why you have them. And so every Christian ought to be able to point to, yeah, here's how I'm making a difference for the kingdom. Every Christian ought to be able to do that. And so as part of launching Project 20, we're going to revisit the six core values of our church. I do this about every two years, and I'll, and I'll tell you why I keep doing it. It's not because I don't think you're intelligent enough to capture it the first time. or It's simply this. Mission tends to drift. In any organization, any system, a mission starts to drift. It just, it just, just does. One of the saddest kind of descriptions of a church actually came out of the mouth of Jesus, and it's in the book of Revelation chapter 2, and it's the church in Ephesus, same church Paul wrote his letter to. Listen to this. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. You're a great church. You're doing a lot of great things. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. You haven't even grown tired of that, but yet I hold this against you. What, what could you possibly, the church is going great. You've forsaken your first love. Now, I, I'm, just, I'm so challenged by that because it wasn't that they'd gone out and gone full-blown rebellion. It was that they were good people. They were doing their jobs. They were living their lives, trying to raise their families, involved in the schools their children were at. It wasn't that they'd stopped doing good things in the community. It wasn't their preacher had done something stupid or their worship was boring. The accusation was simply they had drifted from their first love. And the reason that echoes is because I get that. I can understand that. When I first met Jesus, I was a freshly redeemed pile of Jesus. And anybody who came close to me sort of stepped in it. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of how I was. And, and everybody I met, I didn't care. I was so full of love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and all those other stuff. I just sloshed it out on everybody I met. But the longer I've served him, I've discovered that the more bitter or calloused I can become in some areas. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like it's no longer fresh and new, and I've sort of bought into the Kool-Aid, and I, the less joy I, I share, or the more angry I become towards certain groups of people, and I get adjusted to that, and, and the dynamic happens, I think, for everybody, any Christ follower. The, the further we get from our conversion, sometimes the further we get from being like Jesus, because we've lost our first love. And what starts as a great idea changes, and people forget who they are, and organizations forget why they were formed in the first place, or why they got out of bed in the early days, and the church, our church, cannot afford for this to happen. We can't let this happen on our watch. It can't happen here. So we're going to revisit all the values that the life has that make up these Christ-centered communities that we're starting through Project 20. And to set up the first value, I want to offer this truth. You decide whether or not you believe it to be true. I suggest your identity is shaped by what the most important voices in your life are saying about you. We don't like to acknowledge that, but I think it's true. I think we're all influenced by what the most important voices in our life are saying about us. Let me give you an example of this. Peter was a fisherman. What that means is for a living, he went out every day, he would fish and come back, sell the fish to market, and that's how he made his living. Jesus has just been baptized about six weeks ago, starts walking along the shore, and he sees Peter, Peter the fisherman. 
And right at the very beginning of his public ministry, it's going to last about three and a half years, this scene unfolds. One day, as Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, it's still there, about 12, 13 miles long, about eight, eight miles wide. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come and follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And Peter, Peter did. I mean, he left everything that he was doing and went to follow Jesus. Now, here's what I was, I was thinking about. He had no idea what he was saying yes to when he chose to follow Jesus. He's just minding his own business. He's fishing for a living, and then Jesus calls, okay, I'm in. And so he goes. He had no idea that as a result of answering his call, one day he would be one of two men who would walk on water. <clears throat> he had no idea. <clears throat> Peter had no idea that as a result of following Jesus, one day this same man would turn to him and say, you know, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All he was doing was fishing for a living, and Jesus comes by and says, hey, come and follow me, I'll show you how to fish for something more significant. Peter had no idea that one day he would stand in the holy place of the temple, and he would say to the religious leaders and religious people of the day, y'all just killed the Messiah. Boldly, courageously, and then he would say, but that, even that can be forgiven. And the Holy Spirit would fall on people. And that day, the New Testament church that ultimately would one day produce alive, that church was formed. 3,000 believers were baptized that day. Peter had no idea. So Why? Did he choose to give up his livelihood and follow Jesus? Why would he do that? Why should we even consider something like that? Well, because your identity is shaped by what the most important voices in your life are saying about you. And Peter sensed in Jesus an opportunity to embrace a brand new car smelling identity. Peter sensed Jesus saying, with me, following me, you will become something that you currently are not. You will become as God intended, as you were meant to be. But the journey only happens if he places himself under the authority of something besides what he thinks is best. And that's why our first value will always be the first value of our church. It's biblical authority. We believe the Bible's God's word, and it shows us the right way to live if we're willing to follow what it says is right and true. I want to be really clear on this because this could be the day some of you decide this isn't necessarily where you belong. It could be the day where some of you say, I'm going to be here forever. What this means is as culture changes, a scripture doesn't. So as we find things that we wrestle with in our culture about the, the Bible says that's wrong, but it seems right today, we're wrong. The Bible has authority here. We're placing ourselves under its authority. Why? Well, because your identity is shaped by what the most important voices in your life are saying about you. We're choosing to place ourselves under the authority of what Scripture says is true about me and about you. So for a believer, building an identity on what God says about himself and what God says about you, 
what God says about our world, that's all based on biblical authority. And any time we sacrifice here, the very core of our identity gets sacrificed because now it becomes an opinion swap. Now it becomes who can have the best argument. Hebrews says it this way, the word of God is alive and active and powerful and it's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. So here's my concern. And um, I don't know, I think we're going to the woodshed a little bit today. So, um, you know, I could pray again. We could go get coffee if we want. But I, I guess I'm concerned that the modern church, you know, we say we believe the Bible. We even agree it's the best way to live a life. It's the best way to raise a family and build a marriage. But it doesn't have authority in our lives anymore. Uh, we assume because we, af- we affirm the Bible as being true, that we automatically possess all the things of which the Bible speaks. We assume because we're part of a Bible belt or we're part of the Southern Bible, evangelical, whatever, that everything in the Bible is true because we're part of that, but it's not. In fact, I would say Christians are famous for defending the Bible, but not living under the authority of the Bible. So we're like, we're saying, oh, don't talk about my scripture. You know, you know this is what the Bible says, blah, blah, blah. But in our, in our lives, we're not living under its authority at all. And I think the Bible when we don't live under its authority, that's hypocrisy, people. And it's actually killing our agenda of reaching the world with the love of Jesus Christ because indeed we are guilty of that. I'm carrying a deep burden for our church. I'm afraid we're becoming a people who no longer believe the Bible has authority or maybe we've made a potentially damning assumption that the authority of scripture looks like me and my wise opinions. Is it possible we have accepted the places of scripture that fit our lifestyle and then reject the areas that don't? Is it possible instead of biblical authority, we have biblical buffet? We come along and fill our plates up with the ones that fit our appetite in the moment. Allow me one example of where biblical authority is being ignored in mass quantities in our culture right now, today, respectfully, probably in your life, for sure in my life this week. A place where the scripture isn't ambiguous, it is stark, it is clear, unequivocally clear. And yet somehow we've managed to pretend like it's not in there. This is what Jesus prayed for us right before he gets ready to deal with the cross and all of that. And he's praying for believers. In other words, he's praying for alive. And this is what he prays. Uh, The glory that you have given me, I've given them. He's talking to God the Father. This is a great Trinitarian verse. I've given them that glory. Why? So that why? They may be one as we are one. I want you to... That that verse will mess with me till the day I die. He's praying to the Father that we would be one, me and you. What kind of oneness? Like we all like, like the same team? No, 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 no. The same oneness that's the same as he has with the Father. Doesn't that mess you up? That's what Jesus was praying for us. I in them and you in me, personal relationship, that they may be completely one. Why? He says it again. Why? So that, 
Here's why. The world may know you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The reason that Jesus wanted us to be one and how we interact and how we relate to each other is so the world knows that we're, we're his. And God sent him. He's the son. That's why our oneness matters. You say, Tom, that's just one verse. You're right. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you may be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you. Let's open the altar, shall we? I mean, let's... Can you believe that's in the Bible? Why hasn't somebody cut this out before now? Like we do all the other things we don't agree with. Why don't we edit this out of there in the new translations maybe? That there are no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Friends, he's talking to you. This is biblical authority speaking to the church. He's speaking to church people. These statements should be taken literally. They're not like some of the other ones we can discuss about cultural hair coverings and whether or not to eat lobster. They're not like those. This is just, this is like the other, t- other statements we take in scripture as so literal and we'll defend and even offend for them. Like what it teaches about sexuality or what it teaches about forgiveness or adultery or mur- murdering or lying. It's the same, it's the same context It's the same idea. Have you ever wondered how a person outside the church is viewing Christ followers right now today? Have you wondered that? Come on. Have you thought about it? As we all try to survive the COVID experience, have you wondered how people outside the walls are looking at us? Have you noticed how deeply divided we are? If you haven't, let me take you to my emails. I'll be glad to show you how deeply divided we are. I think this should be alarming to us that the scripture calls us to unity and we stink at it. Francis Chan says this, the world currently hates us not because we resemble Jesus, but because we don't. We are arrogant and there's a serious disconnect between our belief and actions. And I know this isn't talking about you, but can you imagine the person sitting beside you and how they feel? I mean, wow. Biblical authority teaches that our influence on the world, ready, is directly tied to the unity we display. Read it for yourself. Just do a word search on unity and let it mess with you. Meanwhile, we who call ourselves followers of Jesus continue to publicly degrade one another. We who call ourselves followers of Jesus beat the fool out of anybody who doesn't agree with us, oblivious to how we are appearing in the world. And what is alarming to me is Christians are rearing their divisive comments and posts with no sense of repentance or that the disunity they are expressing, ready, is actually sin. It's sin. Just like the other sins, it's sin. It's a violation of a known law of God. When we're choosing to spread a seed of disunity, it is a violation, direct contrast to what Jesus taught. 
And when we give ourselves over to biblical authority, we start to develop the marks of a true follower. And fruit is produced in our lives and fruit is produced from our lives. Check out Galatians 5, 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. In other words, if you don't claim to fly the Jesus flag, this is, this is what your life produces. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasure, and all that. Yeah, boo, yes, boo. Idolatry, sorcery. Who even does that anymore? You know, hostility, Harry Potter. Hostility. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Come on, relax. Idolatry, sorcery, hostility. Check out this. Quarreling. Now, why do you have to go and say that? That's stupid. That's dumb. Jealousy. I am not. You are. Outburst of anger. Selfish ambition, dissension, and I hope he's talking about mathematics here because if he's not, I'm in a world of doo-doo right here. I mean, I'm just telling y'all, and I want to explain something to you very clearly. This is in the exact same context as this. And you and I will stand on the cross and we'll shout and holler about all these people who are different. And in the same verse, that word is there. Dad gummit. It goes on just to let you know. I got to give it all to you. Envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Check out this. Did you hear it? Look at, look, look. Anyone living that sort of life, what? The ones that we just, the division, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't that mess with you? Because here's how I've been interpreting it. I figure if I get 60% of the list, I'm good to go. Because I've just got to keep up with you people. And you just got to keep up with me. Say, if we can all form a club, hey, the 60% club, who's in, you know? We can't do them all, but we'll get 60%. And those 60%, we're going to feel very passionate about. But have you noticed that the other things on the list that we're not doing so great about, God takes these sins seriously. He doesn't say, these are the ones I'm really passionate about, and these ones are like, if you want to. He takes them more seriously than I'm concerned the modern church does. Now look at the contrasting list, same context, same verse. But the Holy Spirit produces. Where does this come from? Not from you. It comes from what you allow the Holy Spirit to do inside of you. It comes to that growing faith piece where you become comfortable with who the Holy Spirit is and how he leads you and guides you and directs you and empowers you. The Holy Spirit produces the kind of fruit in our lives. What kind of fruit, Tom? Love, joy, Peace, patient, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you're wired like me, I love this last part. You can do all that you want, won't get arrested for it. <laughs> yeah, you can do all you want and never get arrested for that. You know what I think causes disunity in the church? I got three things, see if you agree. Raw selfishness, immaturity in our faith, and a decision to remove ourselves from under biblical authority. When those three things happen, when those three things happen, disunity runs like a wildfire. Again, from Francis Chan. Too many people call themselves Christians 
who have never experienced a deep connection with God, because so few people have experienced his love, even fewer are able to share it. When love is shallow, all it takes is something as trivial as a disagreement to divide us. One word for you. Mask. Oh, okay, I got another one, I got another one. Vaccine. Oh, but Tom, I read this on Facebook. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I don't care. All I'm saying is if it's doing this to us, we should be on our knees in repentance. If it's doing that to us, Scripture calls that a sin. So as part of Project 20, um, I... um, and our desire to live under biblical authority. I'm actually inviting everybody to kind of join me in kind of a small group community. Um, When I first read this book, I texted my family. I said, whatever you do, do not read this book. (laughs) I said, you do not want to have the misery of reading this book. And and so uh, just kind of as a warning. And so I did the same thing to our staff. And then like Justine ordered a bunch and gave them out. So as a church, we're going to study this book, Francis Chan's Until Unity. It's a hard hitting book. You can tell by some of the quotes and some of it you may not agree with. That's, that's true for me too. But most of it you will be challenged by. You, you, will, you will feel this. It's a, it's a call for a life to unite under biblical authority. That's what it's a call for. So you can sign up. They open, start today. You can go to our website and sign up or get two or three of your friends, two couples in your neighborhood and say, hey, I'd love to do this book with someone. Would you all be interested? It'll take us eight weeks. We'll read a book and we'll have a study about it. And if you do that, let Justine know and she'll send you a copy of the book for, for at least one, for one of the couples in the group so, or one of the individuals in the group. So begin signing up today. It'll raise issues that if addressed, I think, can change life, and it's certainly impacting mine these days until unity. So where's this all coming from, Tom? Well, so on Monday, I meet with our department head leaders, and, and we were in our, in our meeting, and we turned around, got on our knees, we were in prayer. And as we started to pray, uh, this, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with this term, but the mood of the Spirit, it's like there's moods of the Spirit. Sometimes you come into a room like this, and there's so much joy. And sometimes you come into the room like this, and it's more pensive and more reflective, Well, the mood of the Spirit in my mind as we kind of got on our knees to pray was actually one of repentance. And um, I think Justine started leading us and we started to pray for repentance across our staff and across our body. And what broke our hearts was how people inside the walls of the church were responding to COVID and it was no different than those outside the walls of the church. What broke our hearts was the people inside the walls of the church, whether it's true or not, people see us as ones that know Jesus. And we, we fly his flag and we say he's the hope of the world. But then outside, we feel like we're not, we're, it's like we're living without hope. It's like we're no different than, than people outside the walls. And at a time when the world needs hope, at a time when the world needs a better option, then who can shout the loudest? A better option than my personal freedoms, my mask, my vaccine, no vaccine, no mask. What burdens my heart and what hurts is the church is just as divided and in some cases just as cruel as those outside the walls of the church. The number of people that have vehemently stated, made comments and been confrontational because of some decision that's made somewhere 
It's unbelievable. We've actually joined the ranks of where our opinions line up and, and it's killing our witness to the world. It's killing our opportunity to be involved in Project 20 and it doesn't have to be this way, people. This is our moment as a church, as a community, this is our moment. We can shine with a unity the world cannot see in any direction right now. We're not unified about anything. The church could rise up, not because we all agree, but because we all value biblical authority and its call to protect our unity at all cost. Yes, the church will make decisions related to COVID that you don't agree with. We will and are and will continue. Yes, some of them I don't agree with at a personal level. We have to make them. Yes, the governor, the president, CDC, and Justin Bieber will decide to do something we're all suspect of, okay? Can we all agree? We don't trust anybody right now, right? We're all in a corner right now. Okay, bring them up. Let me at them. Who's coming at me? That's kind of how we all are. But I understand. I'm calling you for it on this. I understand unity will attract more people to Jesus than our stinking disunity. So let's stop it. Let's end it. My submission will attract more people to Jesus than my rebellion. So here's what I know. If this is crawling all over you and you're drafting your email, you and I have different agendas. I want to see as many people come to Jesus as possible. And I don't care what I have to do for that to happen. That's what we want to do. We're placing ourselves under the biblical authority. And we're, we're saying that my submission, even in areas that I don't necessarily agree with, is better than my rebellion. More people will be attracted to Jesus through my love and compassion than through my anger and venting on Facebook. And how I respond out of the fruit of the Spirit in me, I am praying and trusting, may result in one person coming to Jesus. You say, Tom, it's just one. Yeah, but what if the two to 3,000 people who worship at Alive this weekend, what if it happens for all of us? You know what could happen? Freaking Pentecost. <laughs> 3,000 people baptized. Come on. But Tom, that means I got to change. Yes. So do it. Nobody likes the way it is now anyway. Be different. Swim upstream. What does it look like? Well, thankfully, you don't have to rely on my opinion. But since God chose you to be a holy people, since God chose you to be the alive community, people he loves, you must clothe yourself. Oh, I, like, I, like, I got responsibility. Yes, you do. You have responsibility. What do you want? What do I, what do I put on? Like, start with pants. That's a good thing. Clothe yourself with that. You know, don't, don't go to the day without that. Start with that. But then tenderness, tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Check this out. Make allowance for each other's faults. If you want to put stupidity there, that also works. Forgive anyone who offends you. Anybody? Even if like they're pro or they're anti? Yeah, those people. Remember, the Lord forgave you. So maybe you must forgive others. That's biblical authority. And the verse goes on. It says, above all, 
You clothe yourself with love. Love that we're going to unify ourselves under. Not a love today, but a love that's not even of this world. It's a love Jesus came and brought to us. And it binds us all together in perfect harmony, that kind of love. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Who wants to go to a church like that? Well, in order for this to take place, alive, and I mean that by if you call this your home, we have to make sure we guard the unity that we find under God's vision. We're a diverse group of people, and I love that about our church. We have different politics, backgrounds, social standings, faith, religion, relationship status. It's, it's incredibly diverse, and we have plenty of opportunities to be divided over anything in today's world. I want us to be cautious about division taking any kind of foothold here. And so as we launch Project 20, we have to be united in this vision. And we cannot be distracted by anything that separates us. COVID is just the latest that has provided an opportunity for us to be divided. It's just the latest, people. It's nothing new. It's an old ploy of Satan that he has used since the beginning of time. Nothing has changed except for this is our moment to choose how we're going to respond. See if you agree with what I think is true. A divided church is actually a distracted church. Because if we can get so busy beating the fool out of each other, we won't be on mission to what we're supposed to be doing as a community. If I can get so busy at you because you posted that on Facebook and I think you're full of it, then maybe I won't be worried about this. Do you see? Because a divided church is a distracted church. I don't think this is a time to be distracted. C.S. Lewis wrote these words 72 years ago. 1948. The reason he wrote these words was because society was facing their own crisis of 72 years ago. It wasn't COVID they were facing. It was the atomic bomb they were facing. Christians were acting all a fool. They were posting on Facebook and Instagram, showing their incredible wisdom. It's relevant to us in this, just replace atomic bomb with the word coronavirus as I read this quote to you. C.S. Lewis, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, well, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you're already living in an age of cancer or an age of syphilis or an age of paralysis or an age of air raids or an age of railway accidents or an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. There you go, tweet that from the live service. That'd be a fantastic quote. <laughs> 
It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, then let the bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music or Tom's sermons, (laughs) bathing the children once a week, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. Let's be one. Let's be unified. We're going to make it through this. Let's just do it in a way we're all proud of. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you for these beautiful friends. Lord, thank you for the call of Scripture. Where would we be if we had not tried to model our lives, even over 20% of it, Would we know what love and grace and forgiveness is? If we tried to go through this life in particularly difficult days, where would we be without the hope that all things work together for good? If we have a tough life or someone we love has a tough life or life is taken away in a moment too soon, where would we be without the hope that life is eternal and we spend forever with you? And so Father, my prayer, my deepest deepest burden today is the alive community would be united in unity. (laughs) We would find ourselves united in your love, not agreeing on everything, of course not, but protecting our unity as if it's one of our most valued, treasured pieces. So guard our words before we post. Guard our syllables before we speak. Guard our inner thoughts before we form an attitude in order that we might just reach one or 20. In your name, amen.